This is episode 143. Our guest today is Miriam McDonald, who wrote a fantastic book titled Emergent, Rewilding Nature, Regenerating Food and Healing the World by Restoring the Connection Between People and the Wild. Um, yeah, the title says it all, really. Miriam is both farmer and ecologist. And what's fascinating is that she talks in her book and on our podcast about kind of like a inner discussion, maybe even inner conflict in her between her farmer self and her ecologist self. And really that book is a result of a lifetime of experiences and a lifetime of trying to connect and kind of homogenize these two approaches, being farmer, being ecologist, and, um, you know, how this can work together. So um, I think this is a very timely subject uh, with everything that's going on right now with nature, nature restoration, and farming. And um, we talk about many interesting things, like, for example, whether rewilding and farming can support each other. Yeah, support, not only coexist, but support each other. We talk about soil health, we talk about various farming practices, agroforestry, regenerative farming, and so on. So you got the picture. I'm not going to be rambling anymore about that. You will hear our conversation in a second. For those of you folks who are new here, I encourage you to subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, the link is in the description of the show, or you just go to newsletter.tomisoutdoors.com. And when you subscribe to this newsletter, you not only will get notified about new episodes of the podcast, because you can get notified if you subscribe to this podcast, which I hope you do, um, but you also find some more links to explore the topics that we talk about in the podcast, if that interests you. And you also find links to blogs and articles that I wrote and to some events uh, where you can see me speaking live. And speaking about events, there is one on the 27th of May, organized by those lovely folks from People Countryside's Environmental Debate. You can look up their podcast, by the way. And the title of the event is Environmental Debate Live and Unscripted. And yours truly will be there speaking about eating meat and whether we can continue to do so while maintaining clear conscience when in terms to environment, climate change, and environmental issues. So the tickets are on sale already in the, on the Eventbrite. Uh, as always, go in the description of the show and the, all the links are there. And I just remind you once more, one more time, just subscribe to my newsletter, newsletter.tomisoutdoors.com. The link is also in the description of the show. Subscribe to the newsletter. You will get all that information, all the blogs, all the events, all the links and so on in that newsletter. And obviously you can unsubscribe anytime and I'm not going to be spamming you then because I just want people who are interested uh, in what I do here and what I talk about here. Um, and, you know, that's how I roll. So anyway, enjoy the podcast. Miriam, welcome to the show. 
Hey, thank you for having me. Ah, this, it's a pleasure. Uh, and congratulations on the book. I, um, I enjoy it thoroughly. And I'm just going to jump right into it and ask you a question, really a question that you're asking or maybe even answering in your book, which is, can rewilding and farming fit together and support one another on a single landscape? Yeah, um, good question. Um, I think that they almost have to. Um, I personally think that if you know, if we try and segregate uh, one from the other, there's always going to be negative consequences of that. Um, I think that I think that if we try and ring fence um, like wilderness areas. Um, away from people or so that people could only come in as tourists. I think that that undermines our connection to landscapes and connection to nature, which I think in the next generation is probably going to have like a negative effect on how connected we feel to those landscapes and how much we value them. So I think in trying to preserve them in the present, we're potentially undermining like the long-term preservation of them in the future. Um, and as far as, and from the agricultural side of things, I think, um, I think basically we've been undermining our capital, like in our soils and in our uh, ecosystems, and species have been going extinct from our ecosystems, and that's been making them more unstable and agricultural systems more exposed to the effects of climate change or the effects of uh, like massive population spikes in pests, for example. And I think that a surrounding wild landscape that buffers some of that out is the only way of long-term stabilizing those landscapes, those agricultural landscapes. Um, so I think the two will in the long, I think in the long run, they need each other. And it's only this sort of like blip where we've had fossil fueled, um, like fossil fuel powered, but also um, herbicides and pesticides um, that we've been able to sort of mask the need of the, you know, the mask the need of farm systems of the wild and mask um, and mask the sort of the requirement of the wild for us to have a connection to it. That's a very interesting point of view because most of the time uh, in the you know typical conversations you 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 tend to think or or people tend to think about rewilding and farming as something that is opposing each other, like two other things. While you're you're seeing this as a as a one thing that is supporting. Uh, you know, one another, and, and and in the book you have a there is a part where you 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 come to the field or come to the a piece of landscape, and you talk about the dichotomy, like a like an internal conflict of your farmer's eye that you developed and your ecological knowledge, and you were thinking like, yeah, these these things are like, have you arrived since at the point where you are more you know in agreement these two things kind of like are in agreement or is it still like this divide that you talk about in the, in your book yeah that's that's a really good question um i think i think i almost flick between the being you know flick between seeing really seeing the differences and and not and i think there's so much um there's so much in our culture, I think, that is constantly creating or constantly stimulating us to think uh, in divided ways. Like I think, like if I'm talking to farmers or if I'm in an agricultural environment, I think I'm automatically, it's like triggering my agricultural brain almost to be thinking agriculturally. 
And if I'm in a sort of a conservation or rewilding setting, it's triggering my uh, ecological brain to think in a conservation way. Um, and I think, I think in, in conversations with different people, like we all do it, don't we? Switching between different sections of our mindset to sort of so that we can talk to some, you know, talk to one individual easily, more easily, or you know, another individual. Um, and I think. Yeah, and I catch myself doing it all the time, like slipping into this divided way of thinking because it's so well rehearsed in in me and also in our culture, I think. Um, but yeah, and I think it's almost like it's almost like a practice to keep trying to bring that back to some center ground and keep trying to um, like correct, yeah, correct old thought patterns that want to divide and sort of pull that back into something that's more coherent. Um, so yeah, no, it's definitely not something that I've sort of got this uh, coherent worldview now. Um, my brain definitely is wanting to like still segregate, and I think it's an interesting thing. When was the first moment when you realized that? You know, when when it hit you, like because you had you had a very interesting um, history in in oscillating between ecology, ecology courses, and then farming, and and. So what do you remember like this this moment where it was like oh. yeah I guess there were a few yeah there were a few moments um I remember the moment when I sort of decided that conservation that there were some sort of there were some things in conservation that weren't lining up for me um and I remember sort of thinking oh there's probably something else here and that's when I started digging into agriculture and then I became very agriculturally focused. And I remember sort of turning into like my, my brain sort of following more of a profit driven agricultural narrative. And then I remember um, we reseeded a field and I remember looking at it and my, like the bit of my ecological brain kicking back in and going, Oh wow, what did you do? Um, and I think there were sort of moments like that where um, where I'd been viewing the world one way and then suddenly I realised that I'd caused damage because I hadn't been viewing it the other way. Um, and likewise with conservation, sort of like a beautiful landscape that food production had been taken out of. And then the other part of my brain kicked in and went, oh, well, actually, what have you done there? You've You've taken that away from a human interaction. Um, now people can't experience that or can't engage with that in the same way. Um, so I don't think there was sort of one defining moment. There were lots of little um, realizations that sort of built up into an overall feeling of unease, I guess. <laughs> was that the was that the motivation to write the book and and kind of like a share with the world those those views or like what was your you know that moment you decided to, to write a book and, and, and motivation for it? Um, to be honest, the book was a complete accident. Um, I, I'd been sort of, I think by writing. So I'd been like journaling and collecting information and writing down my references and stuff for like 15 years or something. Um, and it actually got so big that um, I'd been doing it all in Microsoft Word and it got so big that Word couldn't open it as one file anymore. um and then I was shearing one year and a sheep dislocated my kneecap um 
so I spent eight weeks sitting down and over those eight weeks, I was sort of thinking, oh, what should I do? Um, and I pulled it all together into some sort of narrative. Um, and that I realized through the sort of condensing of it and trying to figure out which bits I felt were most valuable or meant the most to me, I realized it had turned into a book. Um, and then I sort of decided that that would be potentially valuable to share with other people. Um, yeah, cause I think, I think we're at a point in history where like climate change is really loading on the pressure, isn't it? And I think everyone's feeling that. Um, and I think that's causing like a lot of disquiet to a lot of people. Um, and I'm sort of seeing a bit of, well, like from my perspective, the reaction to that, um, in some cases is to sort of batten down the hatches, really dig into one worldview and defend it quite fiercely. Um, and I think that's possibly not, um, it possibly makes the problem worse in some ways, um, because it stifles open communication and people can't sort of share their feelings on stuff. Um, and I think by stifling communication, we can't, I think there's not a lot of sort of accepting that everyone's actually under threat and everyone's feeling that, you know, feeling a genuine pressure and a genuine threat and that that is uncomfortable for like loads of us. Um, and I think it, I think if we can't talk to each other about that, um, we're sort of left sitting it, sitting, you know, sitting with like a lot of overwhelming feelings and only talking to people who share our worldview. And I think that is like sort of a recipe for quite extreme viewpoints to emerge and probably quite a lot of anger associated with those feelings that can get directed at other groups. I felt like I wanted to offer something that said that there's a way that these things can exist in the same landscape and that dialogue can be between these different groups to sort of diffuse some of this tension maybe, hopefully. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm curious because like what you're saying is I feel sometimes that like with my podcast I'm kind of in a similar position in in terms of um, enabling dialogue and and presenting different point view different points of view and and I was always that was always goal of my podcast you know to talk with with uh, people on both sides of the argument if you like but. Do you find sometimes that you're, you know, you're getting anger from both sides? Because this is how definitely how it feels uh, to me that sometimes, you know, hunting, shooting people are angry at some of my, you know, views or, or podcasts. And then, you know, conservation, ecological minded people are angry at me as well. And, and, and this is exactly what you're talking about, that, that people, that, that discourse is not where it should be. Do you do you do you feel the same thing, or do you like when you talk to farmers, you not mention rewilding, like the R word, dirty word, or, or right? Like, how do you handle that, and uh, how do you feel about this um, place where you're in? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people feel things really deeply, don't they? And they, I think there can be a lot of anger associated with that. But I think. Ultimately, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to play out. I don't know what is right and what's wrong. Um, and and I'm I hold a lot of conflicting views within myself as well. Um, like I both I was raised vegan and now I eat meat, but I don't I don't feel a hundred percent comfortable with rearing something that's that trusts me and then I kill it. Um, so I can sort of see 
yeah, I can, I can, I can almost see different viewpoints reflected in what I think and feel. Um, and, and like, I know, I, I almost think, I almost think that to live in the world now, somebody, you know, to live in the world now as somebody who wants to be, wants to be an environmentalist and wants to do something that is positive for the planet, you've almost got to be a hypocrite because we exist within this context. Um, you know, this context that isn't in like, that isn't a solid idea. Like we exist within neoliberal framework and I engage with that all the time. And, you know, and it makes, you know, it makes me a hypocrite, you know, it makes me a hypocrite in a lot of ways. And I think I just, if somebody sort of, if somebody, you know, if some, if I'm talking to a vegan who's got a very, a very hard stance on veganism, um, I'm just honest that I eat meat, but but that I acknowledge that that's not an easy thing. Pretend, you know, it's not an easy thing for everyone. It's not an easy thing for me. Um, but if I'm talking to a farmer, and I do I do use the word rewilding around farmers or wilding, um, but I'm sort of open about it. It's you know, it's a it's not a help. I don't think rewilding is particularly a helpful word in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the way that it's been pushed by certain by certain people um, has undone a lot of work that it, you know a lot of good that could have, could have come from it. Um, so although I would promote enhance you know like the enhancement of wild processes, I see that there's a lot of trouble with the word rewilding and that there's a lot of tension around that and that it's been used often in quite a negative way. Um, so I, I yeah. I personally think it's just about being open that there almost is no right answer now. There's there's just there's there's a there's a whole range of ways of thinking about it and there's a whole range of emotional responses to it. And I think all of those are valid and all of those have to be um like honored. Yeah. Uh you know, I, I think that in general we should hold contradicting views in our head. Uh, I think it's healthy, and I feel like we lost that, um, maybe not lost the ability, but it somehow it became unnatural that we, we we tend to think that everything should be simple, you know, 280 characters or something. This is this is what it is. Like, tell me what it is. I don't have time. Let's move on, right? And and I and I feel like for for thousands of years. We, as a human beings, as a, as a species, we we were holding the contradicting views in our head at the same time, and nobody was making big deal out of that. It was part of the world, and even if you you know want to take it into the extreme and talk to like like theoretical physicists, they're they're you know you take a quantum theory and the Newtonian mechanics, and they are you know in some extent contradicting. Yet these are concepts that we hold in our head to to build the full picture of the world it's it's not like one dimensional so i i i i agree with you completely that uh, holding contradicting views and and even wrestling with them a little bit in 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 our minds is healthy it's it's what we should do more i think it's like i think we've almost been lulled into this idea that the world is simple and i don't quite know where that idea has come from because it's so obviously not simple and can't be simple and and can't be simplified either. Like it's complex, isn't it? And it's messy, and there's like loads of it. 
Um, and I think, I think like to try and assume that a human, that a human brain is capable of holding all of that, you know, it's capable of holding like a universe of information and that that is going to make sense and there'd be no contradiction in it. It's just a bizarre belief, isn't it? Like, yeah. Yeah. Especially that, 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 that our perception is also limited to our senses and there's like a, yeah, you're right. We, 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 we tend to, um, I think be convinced that we are like, we figured everything out. Like everything is figured out and, and you know, every, every you, you, you turn every corner and it turns out it's, you know, far from being figured out. Um, Miriam, tell me, it was a, in a, in a book, there is a, there is a, because you're, you're, you're mentioned like you're, you're looking at the, as a farmer, as an ecologist, but there was also interesting point in, in your book where you're talking about how you get disillusioned in your ecology course. So we are doing ecology course. And at some point, can you, can you uh, tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. In a lot of ways, my course was really, really good. Um, and, and I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed like the experience of being, you know, yeah, doing my course. Um, but I felt, um, yeah, I felt that the, that there was a strange thing in science, um, where people was seemed to like the, my lecturers were researching really interesting things, but what the, the questions that they were asking and answering were so, were so, so, so small in compared to the, like compared to the scale of um, like the problems that the world's facing, uh, and I felt like that form of science wasn't really equipped to even ask the big questions, let alone start to answer them. And this was at the same time as I was doing a lot of uh, voluntary work in conserva- different conservation organisations. Uh, and working in some really beautiful reserves and some really nice places with some amazing people. But again, the things that we were doing on a practical level were just tiny again. Um, and, and it felt like the scare, you know, the, the sort of the, the response from conservation didn't match the threat that I was learning about to the world. And it seemed that in science and conservation, uh the the two things the two things are sort of were paired um in that what's coming out of science is informing how we manage landscapes and uh you know in britain at least what's happening in landscapes is informing what questions science can ask because we don't have those pristine landscapes to be asking sort of um questions questions about landscapes if humans aren't present and i think that's also another problem in science that it's got this idea that um to ask a proper scientific question we have to take we have to find somewhere where humans aren't and haven't been and never were so that we can see what nature's doing without humans and i think that's just a bizarre like a bizarre concept in itself um because in you know it's it's like saying it's like saying oh let's ask a question of landscapes if we get rid of all the trees we don't want the trees in there and then ask what's happening. It's just, it's just a weird, it's a weird starting point to my mind. Um, yeah. So I guess I was sort of feeling this, um, like the tiny creeping progression of science and these tiny actions that were happening in fragments of landscape, which were our reserves and feeling that that was in no way going to, uh, 
going to stand up to this, the pressure of climate change and all of the fallout that climate change is going to drive both ecologically and in human systems. Um, and, and thinking that there must be some better way of approaching all of that. Um, so that's when I switched into agriculture. Yeah, and and you know, you touch on the on the point, and you earlier also alluded to that that um, there is this concept, like as almost if humans are not part of nature, and I and I presume your 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 belief that the humans are indeed part of nature. I, I can I can let you elaborate about that in, in in a second, but this is how I feel sometimes while I'm having those conversations, not only on a podcast but also on social media where is like you said like oh you know before humans everything was perfect and now those nasty humans comes in and and it's like no no we are natural we are part of that right unless someone thinks that we are dropped here by aliens then we you know we are part of that nature right is is that your is are you sharing that view or you have any caveats to that yeah i think we're an interesting species aren't we because we have this we have a version of culture that can evolve so rapidly and can take us down all of these sort of rabbit holes of thought and we've got a brain that can go in all these different you know that can explore all these different ideas so i'm not sort of saying humans are bog standard like a bog standard species um that's the same as any other species um i think we are different and quite radically different um but that that doesn't mean that we're not part of, you know, that that we that we are something that's actually that's too different to be allowed. I think, I think we've got a really really long tradition of thinking of ourselves as separate, um, you know, going going back thousands and thousands of years. Um, but that I think all of that is, you know, it's all based on this idea, isn't it, um, of the mind being superior to the body, uh, the human and civilization being distinct from the wild, and it go you know it's it's such an old belief, isn't it? And it's sort of so much of our modern understanding of the world has been built at generation after generation, building on this this these sort of these ideas of separation, which I think don't, which I don't you know I don't think I don't think we should have. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that that we are separate. I don't think our brains are separate from our bodies. I don't think humans are separate from the world. I think we're all part of one entity. And although there's difference, there's difference between all species. That's why the that you know that's why that's why there are different species, isn't it? Because we evolved to capitalize on different niches. So there's difference between every single species. And I think we see the difference between humans and other species because we're a human. So we're seeing it from that perspective, aren't we? Um, but I think, I think we're definitely part, you know. And we, you know, and even if even if we could somehow, even if we had been dropped here by aliens, we're living here now. So you know, unless we had been dropped here with aliens by aliens, with little packs that recycled everything that we produced and turned it back into stuff to sustain our body, we'd still be interacting. Um, like, there's no way to unpick that, is it? There's no way to get around that. We're interacting with ecosystems. Yeah, like we're embedded within within food webs, um, and we always have been, and we always will be because 
we're you know we are an animal aren't we um and i think it's i think it, i think it can be a very dangerous path if you start to believe that that we're not an animal that's embedded in food webs um and i think it can steer things off in really wild and unhelpful directions yeah that you you made a very good point that that regardless like even in the in the alien scenario we are already here and we are already um causing those disturbances and 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 uh, and a part of that um yeah you know you 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 mentioned that um almost adversary relation um which is which is also you know like you you kind of understand you you, you or or i can like not you kind of understand but listeners can understand where where it comes from right we, when you think about uh people how they lived like a thousand years ago there was kind of like a natural that the 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 world outside was the the enemy right almost like you you like how you define the process of of life it's it's the process of homeostasis against the environment so you're balancing your own actions and everything against the environment to, to stay in balance and and continue existence so it's it's kind of natural to that point that we were trying to get you know uh, protected from animals and you know defeat the nature in, in 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 certain ways except we get so goddamn efficient at it right that it's 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 kind of springs out of control right now a really long time ago that was saying how long it would take a human with no tool to chop down a tree and it was just this, it was like months and months or something like that. And then how long it was for a human with a metal axe to chop down a tree. Um, and it was sort of hours. And it was like, how, how long is it with a chainsaw? And you drop down to like, you know, seconds, depending on the size of the tree. And it's this, it's like when we're, we're always, um, as we've harnessed different sources of power, it's like upgraded our ability to, make impact in the world hasn't it and yeah you get to this place only where we can we can do whatever we like and and you know we've fundamentally like we've altered the atmosphere like that's amazing isn't it if it if it wasn't so deadly that's an amazing accomplishment like <laughs> like it's a crazy thing to have done and it is isn't it like as you get um so it's that quote from spider-man isn't it with great power comes great responsibility um yep and i think we've upgraded our power, like our power ability so drastically, haven't we? And now we're in this position where we've got to be really, really careful about that. And, um, mm -hmm. for sure. And, you know, I, I don't think, I don't remember, I don't remember whether it is in, but I think it is in your book, but this is the concept I heard about earlier as well, that you can almost think of, in uh, invention of farming as a as a sort of like a mistake in air quotes seeing you know how how we used to live and how you know then then we turned into the our our uh society let's call it into farming and then all the impacts on the environment and where we are now that it almost if we can roll back time and start over then and and the farming didn't emerge we would figure out something else it would be almost almost better have, have, uh, am i getting this right did you have any comments on that concept of you know like oh we better we would be better off if we never invented farming and do something else instead 
Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we're so used to viewing farming as this like amazing this amazing thing that we did and then it led to all this other amazing stuff and weren't we clever for doing all that? And I think I think it's yeah, I think it's interesting that it happened because there seems to be sort of increasing evidence, doesn't there, that farming that there was no clear line between like farming and um, hunting and gathering strategies and that people were sort of develop, you know, using farming for certain parts of the year or in certain areas in their territory and then shifting back to hunting gatherer away like styles. And it seems like that was a really blurred thing where a lot of strategies that we would now call farming were happening alongside a lot of hunter gathering strategies across a landscape. And, and I sometimes, given that farming evolved independently in so many places, um, it seems as if, or like, or like from my perspective, it seems as if, um, farming, farming of annuals where you can stockpile those annuals was always going to be something that could suppress other strategies. And I think it's a bit like the hawk dove game, um, you know, the economic hawk dove game where you've got a population of doves that are sort of peaceable and just going about their business. And evolution will always generate a hawk because a hawk will is always going to have a, a like an advantage over doves because it can eat the doves. And evolution works like that, doesn't it? If there's a plentiful resource, something will evolve to utilize it. And I think you can see that in in all these like different strategies and all these different ways that people have been getting food over our history. Um, it's almost like an uh, an annual an annual-based farming strategy is the hawk that evolves. And as soon as you've got that, it's very difficult for other strategies to coexist because, because you can accumulate, you know, you can accumulate a stockpile of annual grains. They're very energy dense. They store well, they transport well. It gives you almost, annual grains are almost the first, like, concentrated power source that we got. And then it gives you this ability to amass, um, like hierarchies and warrior classes. And as soon as you've got this sort of system getting in place, you can fan out across a landscape and, you know, basically take other people's territory. Um, and, and it sort of maybe wasn't brilliant that that happened, but almost, you know, it seems like it was inevitable. And given that that happened in different places around the world. Um, and sometimes I wonder as well if, because it seems like you know we've been down this we've been down this massive journey that's taken us to a place where we've got all of this technology and all of this technology allows us to look at the world in a different way and in a way that we would never have been able to look at it if we hadn't have been through this process of accumulating this technology and it feels like there should be it's very easy to sort of say all of that is negative but it's it has brought us so much hasn't it and sometimes I wonder if what it's, you know, what it's brought us is the ability to know how complex the world is and to, and to be amazed by that on so many levels. I think it was um, James Lovelock. Uh, I'm not sure in which book, whether it was Gaia or one of the others, um, said that he thought that the, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing, that the point of um, humanity or like the role that humanity played in, you know, the, in the Earth system was so that the earth could appreciate how beautiful it was. 
Um, and I thought that was like, you know, that is what our technology, you know, that is what our technology's brought us, isn't it? And it's where farming, it's where, you know, it's where farming has sort of inevitably led to. Um, and I feel like, given that we've probably got to change how we're doing things now, taking that learning with us is, is sort of like what we've, you know, what we've learned from this cycle of like trashing the earth, basically, um, We've learned a lot about it and hopefully we can re-embed that into a culture that's more stable and more in tune with natural cycles and other species going forwards. But remember, you know, but, but take that learning with us. Do you think it is it is possible uh, at all to go the opposite way and go, you know, all technological and artificial and, you know, sort of grow up, grow up? well grow up is probably the right word uh from the being embedded in the ecosystems and become this technological species you know what i mean yeah um my feeling is that it's that it's possible um but my feeling is that we're not equipped to do it um I think I can't remember which book it's in. I think it might be in Sapiens, um, where where um, where there's this idea that uh, human culture evolved, or like, yeah, human culture evolved more rapidly than biological evolution, and we sort of jumped from being a low-level predator to a high-level predator without, but that but that jump was a cultural jump that we're biologically still a low-level predator. And so we didn't evolve all of these checking mechanisms that other high level predators have, like all this posturing and like all this behavioral stuff that sort of keeps our power in check. So we're not damaging stuff. And, and if that's right, that we don't have, and it, you know, it, it sort of seems like we don't have this ability to check our power or um, use posturing instead of actually just doing something. Um, it worries me how much, So far, we sort of, from my view, um, very much misused our power, and it worries me the, the the sort of the idea of keeping on loading more and more power, like giving us more and more power, um, and assuming that we'll learn how to use that because it so far seems that we haven't wielded that very well. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, and a lot of that power is is spent on like a petty little dumb things mm -hmm. rather on doing like a big important stuff yeah that's a that's a also part of the problem which is which is what you're what you're saying yeah i think um, um george monbiot's caused quite a lot of us quite a big stir hasn't he with regenesis um and i think at the end he um summarizes it by saying something like that we could be cooking all of our protein in vats and uh and uh And what we have to do is just figure out a way that big business doesn't end up owning those systems. It's like, well, if it was easy to figure out a way for big business not to end up owning uh, assets, that are, you know, resources that everybody needs, we'd have done that already, and we wouldn't yeah, be. In of course, of course, they're going to end up owning that. That's yeah. uh, it's a given. It's yeah, a given. That's how the system is set up, actually. Yeah. Ah. Listen, uh, Miriam. Let's switch gears now a little bit and let's talk about soil. Soil is so important, and as more and more people talking about soil and the importance of soil, uh, but I feel like there's still not enough uh, talking about it. 
Um, so can you, for the benefits of me and our listeners and viewers, talk about a little bit of a soil, how important it is, and why uh, agri current agricultural practices, I think that's the correct term to not upset any farmers listening to that, why they are rather poor at maintaining um, quality soil. I guess the crux of the matter is in the type of agriculture that we've, you know, that we've evolved, you know, that we've evolved with. Um, so um, we, the vast majority of our food comes from annual grains and almost exclusively um, those annual grains were originally grown in the alluvial soils alongside rivers. So there was, so naturally each year, a new level of silt was deposited by the river. The weeds were suppressed, and annuals could grow really, really well in those conditions. Um, unfortunately, there isn't that much uh, habit like river, like alluvial soils in the world. So people started to expand into trying to copy that system, but on dry land. Um, and so we started trying to till the soil to create this bare soil to grow the seeds in. And we also started trying to bring in fertility uh, instead of the, the river sediments to replace the fertility each year uh, to maintain those yields. And it, that's basically really tricky to do. Like fundamentally, um, you know, that's, that's just a difficult thing to try to do. And it has a lot of side effects. So unless you're on a river, if you're exposing if you're taking the vegetation off land and you're exposing that soil, you've exposed it to the rain and the wind. And uh, and as climate change keeps uh, keeps going and weather events get more extreme, you're exposing it to ever more extreme weather. Um, and and that sort of that isn't that has a massively damaging effect on soil because soil is not meant to be it's meant to be exposed in very small blocks. Uh, for discrete time periods, not sort of month after month in vast acreages, um, year after year. That soil, you know, soil just hasn't, that doesn't happen to soil in a natural environment. Soil isn't equipped, you know, that isn't something that, you know, that isn't something that happens in nature. And the other part of that, of moving these vast, uh, the you know, this vast amount of nutrients about a landscape, there are very few times when, nutrients is gathered off a huge, huge area and then deposited on a small area. Um, there are very few systems in which that happens naturally again. And it's, it's completely unnatural to, to synthet, you know, to sort of do this, this synthetic fertilizer where we're taking nitrogen out of the air, fixing it and then putting it on soil. So, so what we're trying to do is a very, very unnatural thing. And there isn't, and because it's a, such an unnatural thing, ecosystems, the ecosystem around it aren't equipped to deal with that. So, uh, so when you've got a load of bare soil and you have uh, intense rains, that soil is all just going to wash straight off and into a river. Um, and a river, a river isn't designed to have that input of soil in it because it's not meant to, you know, because the soil isn't meant to exist in a bare state in the first place. And again, if you put a load of fertilizer on a field. Again, that's just going to wash straight off into a river, and a river isn't designed for that either. So, so we're sort of creating this disturbance in an ecosystem that isn't in line with anything that an ecosystem has, has evolved to have in it, and there are a lot of side effects 
that ripple through an ecosystem because of that uh, because of that change that we've made. Um, and this is the trap, you know, this is the trap that we've got ourselves in, isn't it? That our food sources require us to make these disturbances and ecosystems can't handle those disturbances. And we're in this tension now, aren't we, where um, where we feel that we've got to keep making the disturbance because of the level of population that we've got and and ecosystems are quite clearly expressing that that can't keep happening because rivers, the rivers have got too high a nutrient level in them, they've got too much soil in them, um, and and the soil is soils also so soil's like a funny thing, isn't it? Because it's part mineral, part air, part water, and part life. And that the life is actually the thing that binds all of the, you know, the water, the air, and the mineral together. <clears throat> uh, like plant roots bind that all together. Plant roots are feeding all the bacteria that are essentially creating soil. Um, all of the fungi in there as well, which are creating, which are excreting the things that are stabilizing the soil into into aggregates that don't wash away in the rain. And then, when a farmer comes along, or when when somebody comes along and clears the life off the top of that soil, they clear the life from underneath that soil, and then leave it in a really vulnerable uh, position. So, and then and then it washes away, and it doesn't rebuild very rapidly. Um, so year on year, you have less and less soil. And so you end up with the soil being in the wrong places, like in the rivers and in the sea, uh, not on the land, uh, which means that you are lowering how much, uh, lowering what you can produce from that soil each year. Um, and you end up in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, what did it say? Is it like how many harvests are left until 2050 or something? There's like this number that's thrown around. Yeah, there are a few different numbers, aren't there? There's meant to be 60. Are there 60 harvests left in British soils? Like completely, I think, was one figure. Um, mm. Internationally, it's much lower, isn't it? Um, I can't remember what it is internationally. Yeah. And what's your what's the what's the solution to that in in your opinion? Because if mm. if 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 those uh, estimations are correct, then then we're done, essentially. Mm. Majority of the population, anyway. Yeah, I think so. People have sort of tried quite a few different things, haven't they? Um, some people have thought, can you make soils? Um, can you make what what are now annuals perennial? So can you breed a perennial wheat or a, a perennial rye or something like that? So that then you effectively just mow it like a lawn, but all the roots stay in there and protect the soil. Um, and the like, the Land Institute have had a lot of you know have put a lot of research effort into this, and it has it's bearing fruit. Um, we do have. Now, you know, now there are perennial grains, but a perennial grain is never going to yield as highly as an annual grain because a perennial has got, say, seven years of life to split its reproductive effort over, whereas an annual has got to do everything in one year. So it's in its best interest to produce as much grain as possible, whereas a perennial it's in its best interest to buffer how much grain it produces over its life. So you're going so so off the acreage that we've got that's currently grain production, perennial grain it's probably never going to yield what annual grain can produce. Um, so then other people have thought, can you do annuals 
but in a way where you don't have acre upon acre of them, but you thread them through a landscape so that you're only exposing small sections of soil within an otherwise vegetated landscape. Because then if it rains, the soil's only going to wash off and get so far to the next strip of perennial vegetation instead of washing straight off and all the way down to the sea. Um, and um, sort of our modern agricultural equipment isn't really, it's not really set up to grow grain in those ways. Um, so you end up needing more human power, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, because if you, if you're sort of pushing things into those, into that realm, you can turn it by hand, you can do all that labor by hand, or you can also just mulch it out so that you don't necessarily have to turn the soil at all. You could just, uh, like you would do in a veg garden, like lay down cardboard or mulch or use black plastic to suppress weed growth. So there are these different ways of, um, once you, once you're operating on a smaller scale with a lot more people, you get a lot more options as to how you can uh, organise grain production and how you can deal with weeds and how you can deal with uh, replacing fertility. Um, and then other people are suggesting that we sort of we give up on grasses altogether, uh, and we produce, we try and produce our, uh, the bulk of our calorific needs from tree crops. Um, so there are quite a few. Martin Crawford at the Agroforestry Research Trust has done a lot of research into nut crops in Britain, um, and he's sort of you know looking at looking at hazelnuts and chestnuts and walnuts and those sort of things that we think of, and then like a like a wide array of nuts that you know much less common nuts. Um, and they've got they've got a, a a variety of hazel now that can yield as much per acre as um, conventional wheat. So there is sort of a chance that perennial, like the tree crops can start to yield um, like enough, like enough calories to support us, but obviously they take a while to get established and we don't, we then, we don't have the, you know, we've got a lot of millers and bakers and ways of handling grain, but we don't really have the infrastructure to handle tree crops, like the, the food from tree crops. Um, so all of them have got different, all of them have got bring with them advantages and disadvantages. And to my mind, um, it's about threading all of them together into a system that minimizes their disadvantages whilst maximizing their advantages and threading uh, annuals in while we figure out what we're doing with perennials. Um, and we've, as of April, we've got a farm, 120 acre farm, and we're experimenting with that here. So we're experimenting with how we can thread in annual grain production, um, trying to minimize uh, minimize soil loss and minimize soil exposure, um, while still trying to get a decent yield from an organic system. And when when you're expecting, are you expecting to write another book about it, or like paper, or publish paper on it, or like how does that go? This experiment. Um, I think we're doing quite a lot of things on the farm. We're trying quite a few different things. Um, because effectively we're trying to blend uh, nature connection, wilding and regenerative food production. And we're trying to partner with various academics to research various sections of that system. So hopefully a lot of it will become distributed through other people, like through various networks. Um, but yeah, I'd really like to write a second book. It'll probably be in another 15 years. That's the trouble. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I guess it's going to be well, well worth, well worth waiting um, for 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 that book, um, Miriam. So, so from the you know, obviously you have an experience because you're doing that. You you said that you try to uh, in, incorporate wilding or rewilding um, in, in in on your farm. But uh, you know, more general generally, if you were put in charge of farming in the world, right? Let's just, let's assume it's possible one person being in charge of farming in the world, or at any other scale that you want for the purpose of this podcast. Uh, if in case this is too big, um, how would you? How would you? You know, what would be your recipe to combine? Uh, wilding or rewilding or restoration of natural processes with farming with food production. What would what would be that you know like a universal with the old caveats that you know there are different habitats and 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 so on and so forth. But in general, like a, like a guiding principle, what, how how do you would set that up? How would you recommend to do that? I think my first step would be to like delegate all of that responsibility to other people. Um, so I think I don't, I, you know, I, I don't even understand Britain, let alone the rest of the world. Um, so I think I would, but I think like as a first, as a first point of call, I would put, put, put a lot of responsibility or I would sort of give back responsibility to indigenous groups or people who still hold indigenous knowledge because i think um uh i think there's so i would so i would sort of start by asking if i was doing so the process that we've we've gone through on our farm because it, it is effectively what we've been asked of of this you know in getting this farm has been to see what knowledge um, what knowledge is held locally about the farm and the landscape and how it's been in the past and try to dig into how it's been in the past to try and understand it on more layers than is just what's present now um, because what's present is a massively stripped back version of what has been here historically. Um, and then the next thing that we've tried to do is... Um, unpack so some of what that means so what of the past do we feel we want to carry on into the future and what of the past do we feel we want to sort of acknowledge and leave um and we're in the process of doing that at the minute um and and then we're looking at how how much food we feel we have to produce to feed uh, so it's a 120 acre farm and to feed people in uh, Britain, you know, we'd have to, if you average how many people there are in Britain over how many acres of land there are, we would have to feed 255 people. Um, so then we're sort of putting it in that context to make sure as, as a guiding principle, to make sure that we, when we're blending wilding with agriculture, we're not, uh, we're not effectively leaving some people out in the cold starving Um that we're making sure that we are on track for feeding enough people. Um, and then, and then we're sort of going through this process of inviting the community in, like the current community in to ask them what they, how they would like, what they would like in the landscape, how they would like that to be reflected in what we do here. And if they'd like to 
contribute to that and help co-create that. So we're trying to make it a synthesis of the past, the present community, making sure that we're on track to feed enough people. And then it gives us this area in which we can work um, and what it's looking like. And then, and then what it's looking like is that we're going to allow natural processes to happen on the farm. So like look where scrub is naturally developing and give that a helping hand and potentially plant in productive trees into that scrub so that we can harvest them in the future. And if we don't harvest them, blackbirds will eat the apples or whatever. Um, and then we're going to try and get a scaffolding of agroforestry systems in so that we're getting our perennial nut crops in um, so that they can be producing our calories in the future. And then because we don't have, um, like a lot of a lot of wheat is designed, has been bred for these really intensive systems. We're blending in wheat and we're... we're um, we're trying to create a population wheat where we're growing wheat and then we're harvesting it. And what does well, we're sort of re-sowing so that over generations of wheat, that wheat is going to become tailored to our landscape. And we're going to be doing that across the board with everything. Um, so, and then who knows where that goes from there. It's sort of then, then I kept, well, so acknowledging natural process. So trying, trying to use, trying to use what we know about agriculture and what we know about evolution to create something that is tailored to this landscape, uh, whilst acknowledging that wild processes are occurring and supporting them and allowing them to happen where they're happening and merging that with the needs of the community from a food perspective and also from a connection to landscape perspective and uh, bringing in the enthusiasm that the community's got to create something in the landscape around them that feeds them. Um, and we're trying to create this this culture on the farm where people um, where people are creating a landscape that sustains them, and then through inputting into that landscape, they create um, you know they're sustained by the landscape because they're you know because the landscape sustains them, they're sustained by the landscape, and then their effort then then creates the landscape that sustains them. So we're trying to create this cycle um, where people. Yeah, people are acting as a keystone species in a landscape and the landscape supporting the community whilst acknowledging wild process within that. Um, so that's that's sort of it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I love it because you're you're doing rewilding, but not so this sort of like a fortress rewilding without humans, but like a having humans part of it. Like you said, like a keystone species. I, I I love it. And another thing that you said that that I that I really resonated with me is like, you don't know what's gonna happen next. You see how it goes. What are the processes? Which is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the key differentiators between conservation and the rewilding. If we, you know, if we even draw this um, division between, you know, is a conservation here, which is. Um, has certain aims, certain goals, and here's a rewilding, which is like, okay, let's restore the processes and we see where it, where it goes. So on that vein, do you feel like conservation is something that uh, failed and it, it, it wasn't successful and now we need something new in this place, like restoration or rewilding? Or are you comfortable with the term conservation? I don't think conservation failed. Um... I think I think it actually did a really, really good job of 
protecting things that we would otherwise have lost. So over these, over this rapid, um, the rapid changes over the end of the 1700s and the 1800s to the present, um, I think conservation did a really, really, really good job of preserving these fragments of past landscapes. And, and I think that we, you know, I think, I think that needs acknowledging and I don't, you know, I don't, I think, I don't think we should forget that conservation did amazing things. Um, but I think, I think there's also a need to acknowledge that, um, whilst preservation of those fragments was really good, um, it was perhaps, or in hindsight, it seems like it was an incomplete picture. Um, that there's no point preserving fragments if you're not allow if you're not allowing evolution to occur, and I think this is what rewilding offers. Um, this sort of idea of areas in which natural processes can evolve, landscapes can evolve, species can evolve, the dynamics between them can all shift. And I think in a climate destabilized world, that's massively, massively valuable. Um, so I would see, I would see it as being a synthesis of both. I think we need to. I think we do need to have a, an eye on what used to be here and how we, how we on, you know, how we how we maintain that and how we honour that, um, whilst not letting that stifle the evolution of something new. Um, and I think that's always there's always a tension. There's always a tension wherever that occurs, isn't there? The the preservation of the past, um, trying to align it with allowing evolution of the future. Um, so I think. And I think there's, I think that's part of the tension between conservation and rewilding. And I think both are really valid and needed things. Um, and I think they can support one another as well. Um, if they're, if we can sort of, if, yeah, if we can thread them together in a constructive way. Um, yeah, I, I, I love your vision of the conservation, rewilding and farming all working together and being one whole. It's, it's just the awesome vision, I think. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, listen, how do you see the future of uh, our food systems and future of our wildlife playing out over next decade, two, three, four, five decades? How do you, you know, if you if you were look into a crystal ball or just guess the future? I think climate change is going to get worse. I think there's going to be increased instability. Um, and I think humans are probably going to act, like react to that in bizarre ways, um, throwing a lot of wild cards in. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess, but what you know, what I would hope for would be that we manage to make a shift in our thinking, where we can acknowledge bigger pictures and we can merge merge the best of what we've got together. And um, hopefully, hopefully, step away from uh, a rigidity of thinking that leads to like the whole world must look like this, or you know, or all people must eat this. To um, something that something that blends a lot of things together. Um, and I don't know what those things will be, um, but it would be, and I think, you know, I think it's almost like there's so much, 
there is so much complexity and we're at a point of such rapid change the thing that i the thing that i actually hope for is that i don't know what's going to happen um because i think what's got to happen has got to be so radically different from what we're doing now i don't think we I, you know i hope that we can't predict it um it's that thing isn't it the um you can't use the master's tools to disassemble the master's house um and what i what i would hope for is something happening that can't be predicted that we can't know that's a totally radically new way of viewing the world and life that allows us to move to a next you know allows us to move to some way of being with nature and being in a natural world that is beneficial for the world and for us um yeah and i yeah but i don't like i hope that happens um that's a you know that's a, that is a that is actually excellent answer and um probably most reasonable you know uh that who knows what's gonna happen uh, probably something that we that we cannot predict folks um emergent rewilding nature regenerating food and healing the world by restoring the connection between people and the wild miriam kate mcdonald um uh, folks go and buy that book it's 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 worth uh reading uh, Miriam, thank you uh, for your time. It's been very educational, and I wish you, you know, all the best with your experiments and with your farming. And uh, yeah, I'll be waiting for uh, next book. Really cool. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been really good. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcast. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 